Welcome to the Journey Church Podcast. We hope that this message will challenge you and encourage you on your journey of faith. If you would like to learn more about Journey Church, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and online at thejourneychurch.cc. Now enjoy the message. So I got 30 minutes to go until 11 o'clock, and uh, that's when we'll start our first closing at 11. And then we'll do our second closing, 11.10, and our third closing, 11.20. I'm just kidding. Maybe. So, all right. So we are, simmer down, simmer down. All right. So we are in a series called, But Is It Christ-like? And if you've been here over the last couple weeks, uh, you know it's been a challenging series, to say the least. It's been a great series. Uh, To say the least, it's been challenging us to change maybe the way we think about particular situations, maybe how we think about God, or even how we read some Bible stories. Um, And so we've tackled some pretty big things. The primary thing we started off with, and I'm not going to do a full three-week review with you, just a couple things real quick. Um, The primary thing that we started off with in this series was making sure that we we can understand that we understand that God is just like Jesus, right? I read this quote uh, from Pastor Brian Zod. He's a beautiful quote, and this is what it says. It says, God has always been like Jesus. Hear me, church. There has never been a time when God was not like Jesus. We have not always known what God is like, but now we do. How is it that we know what God is like? What is the answer, church? Come on. Jesus. It's a Sunday school answer right? 98% of the answers to all the questions your pastor asks you when he's preaching the message is going to be Jesus. That just helps you out, right? Okay. So uh, we know what God's like because we know what Jesus is like. We see Jesus. And, And one of the things that we talked about is that Jesus is not a revelation of God. He is not a revelation of God to be attached to all the other different views of God that we read from Genesis through Revelation. He's not an addition to God's character. Jesus is not a revelation of God. Jesus is the revelation of God, the definite article. He is the revelation of who God is. So in other words, if we want to know what God is saying, we can look at Jesus because Jesus is what God is saying. Does everybody get it? Everybody tracking? So Jesus is what God has to say about your situation. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, this verse echoes many that are found in John, 1st, 2nd John, and also in Hebrews. But this is what it says, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. It it echoes this verse. It says, Christ is the visible image of the, what church? (laughs) Jesus, that's right. Christ, almost, I said 98% of them, you know. All right, but Christ, I know, I know. Christ, it was good. Christ is the, let me just say, Jesus is the visible image of who? The invisible God. I'm glad you guys can have fun at church, man. That's the way it should be, right? At my expense. Come on. So Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything else was created and is supreme over what? Come on, all creation. All creation. There's never been a moment where God has not been like Jesus. We've not always known it, uh, what God is like, but now we do. We see it through Christ. And so what does that mean for us? That means that every revelation of God revealed in Scripture up to the point of Jesus has to bow its knee to the full and express revelation of God in Jesus. Do you understand? What the Old Testament saints, what the Old Testament prophets saw in part, we see in full, right? It's kind of like going to a, a parade. You ever been to a parade before, right? Ever seen a parade? 
heard the word parade. Give me hands for everybody in the room. Okay. If you're watching the parade on the side of the road, you know that you can see certain things. You can only see what's directly what? In front of you, right? And you might catch glimpses of a float that's behind you, right? And so I can't tell what the entirety of the parade looks like if I'm just looking right here and only seeing the thing that's in front of me. But if I get into a helicopter and I hover above the parade, I can see the parade in its entirety. Do you, do you understand? And so in the Old Testament, these guys got glimpses of the floats. They got glimpses of a float of God in this part. They got glimpses of God in this part. And, and some of their glimpses were completely wrong, and then some of their glimpses looked very Christ-like and were good, but it wasn't until Jesus showed up that he revealed the entire parade of God. Metaphors for days, y'all. Metaphors for days, all right? And so this then changes how we read scriptures, right? Because now we read the scriptures with a Christ-like lens. We read the scriptures looking for Jesus in the story. And when we encounter a violent portrait of God in the Old Testament, like the flood in Genesis, how many of y'all were here two weeks ago, three weeks ago, we talked about the flood, right? That baked some people's noodles. We were like, what? Like, I've never heard that before about the flood. So when we go back and we read about the flood in light of Christ, we can see things differently. We find Christ in the story as the ark who provides salvation from sin, that is the water, and brings about life and resurrection when Noah gets off the ark. That's where Christ is at in the story, right? We, we look for Christ in the story. And we have to ask ourselves, if we see these violent, violent portraits of God, we have to ask ourselves, what is happening here? We must understand what the ancient writers saw in part and not that they saw in part and not what we see in full. God does not change. Do you believe that, church? Unless you hold to open theism, which is just a, another you know, topic for another day, uh, God does not change. God is the same yesterday, today, and what? Tomorrow. Yesterday, today, and tomorrow, God is the same. But if you go back and you start reading scriptures, there is no doubt that you're going to find, a, find many spots where you go, wait a minute. God looks very different here than he does right here. And so what happens when we try to make Jesus a revelation of God instead of the revelation of God is we compose or we build an image of God that looks very schizophrenic. It does. We look at an image of God, we, we try to do some theological gymnastics, some mental gymnastics to try to make God look both good and good, even when he looks bad and bad. Do, do you understand? Like somehow we have to reconcile, this is not for this week, but this is for next week, but somehow we have to reconcile when God commands genocide, we have to somehow say, well, God's still a good God, even though he commanded genocide, and so uh, somehow we got we to gotta process that and still know that God's a good God. Or once we have a revelation of who Jesus is, we can look at those stories again and say, what is really going on here? Better yet, what is digging, let's dig deeper. What is it that the ancient writers thought? When they were writing this, why were they putting this together like this? Why did they perceive God like this? That's what we need to be asking. And so, like we said, we, we took care of the plague. If you missed that message, I encourage you to go back. You can go uh, to thejourneychurch.cc and check the message out there. Or you can go and find the Journey Church podcast on any of your podcasting platforms, and you can catch that message. But today, we're going we're gonna to tackle a very popular story. A lot of things are biblical, but the question comes back to, but is it what, church? Is it Christ-like? We're going to tackle a very popular story 
that needs to be examined in the light of Christ and then give you some context so you can read this thing from a different view. Now, let me just start off before we get into this and say the same thing that I say every time that I preach a challenging message every week. Listen, this is what you can do. You can hear it, process it, you can agree with it, or you can completely disagree with it. And guess what? We can still worship together. We can still love each other. We can still do that. You can still do that. I, you can go, man, I agree with like 60% of what Pastor Chris says, 100% of what Pastor Kim says. Listen, I don't need that right now from you. She's not even in here to get that. But you can, you can say and, and, and still be okay. I don't know if I quite believe that. I don't care if you really believe it or not. I'm presenting another way of looking at it. And my challenge to you is to go study it out for yourself. Amen? You should not come to church and just think that everything I say is gospel truth and it's always right. I might be wrong. Might. I might be wrong. Could be wrong. So we're going to look at a story that's very, very popular in light of this, having this Christ-centered lens. And it's the story of Moses and the ten plagues. Come on, y'all remember the story of Moses and the ten plagues, don't you? Y'all seen the prince of Egypt? Y'all remember that? Ten commandments if you're over 50. Ten commandments, you know, right? Charlton Heston, let my people go. But in case you don't know the story, I'm going to kind of give you an overview, and then we're going to unpack this. I'm going to bake your noodle, and then we're going to leave, okay? And left you think. So here, the, the book of Exodus opens up with a piece of information. It's very important information. Over in Exodus chapter 1, verse 8 through 11, don't worry. We're not reading verse by verse the first 14 chapters of Exodus. I'm just going to summarize, okay? So Exodus chapter 1, verse 8 through 11, it says, eventually, y'all say eventually. Isn't it interesting that it says eventually? It doesn't give an exact time or date. Like, ah, once upon a time. Okay? Eventually, a new king came to power in Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph and what he had done. Now, you remember uh, 400 years prior to that, uh, Joseph found himself in, in, in Egypt. Y'all remember Joseph in the Technicolor coat, right? Y'all remember that? And so he finds himself in Egypt and, and was in the pit and in the prison. Then he got elevated to the palace, became Pharaoh's second in command. And they, Israel was shown tremendous favor. And they started growing and all sorts of things started happening. But then the story starts off again in Exodus. Eventually, a new king came to power in Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph or what he had done. And he said, he said to his people, he said, look, the people of Israel now outnumber us and are stronger than we are. We must make a plan to keep them from growing even more. If we don't, and if war breaks out, they will join our enemies to fight against us, and they will escape from the country. And so the Egyptians made the Israelites their what? Their slaves. That's what it says. Made the Israelites their slaves. Now, Pharaoh, in this process to curb the, the, the growth of the Israelite population, the Hebrew population, Pharaoh goes and he, he decrees, he, he gives a decree. He tells these two uh, Hebrew midwives, he tells them, I want you to go around and every child that's born that's a male under two, I want you to kill. I want you to take them. I want you to throw them into the Nile River and let them be crocodile bait, right? That's what he says. 
And so these Hebrew midwives, they, they, they go around, and instead of doing what he says, they actually help give birth to the kids, and, and they let them live. And when he, the, the Pharaoh asked him, he says, why are you doing this? Why are you allowing this to happen? The midwives said, listen, these Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, right? When they're ready to have the babies, they come right out. That's in the Bible. That's what it says. It says they are quick. Yeah, yeah, the pop sound. Right, it comes right up. That's what he said. They come right out. And so then, then Pharaoh issues this decree to the whole people of Egypt and says, go and find all these babies, and I want you to kill all these male babies. Now, if you fast forward, Exodus chapter 2, right, you fast forward, it says this in verse 1. Now, about this time, a man and a woman from the tribe of Levi, a discussion for another time is really, really interesting, is that part, the tribe of Levi, right? You want to study that out? Go study that out. It's really cool. Um, about this time, a woman and a man, man and a woman from the tribe of Levi got married. Y'all say marriage. You remember marriage? Y'all remember Princess Bride? Yeah. Again, everybody over 50. All right. I love Princess Bride. That's a great movie. So, all right. So a man and a woman from the tribe of Levi, I need to hurry up because I'm not going to get done if I keep doing this. Got married. The woman became pregnant and yet y'all still come back. The woman became pregnant. And gave birth to a son, and she saw that he was a special baby and kept him hidden for three months. What was special about him? Not quite sure. But when she could no longer hide him, she got a basket. Y'all say basket. Except for that word in Hebrew is not the word basket. It's not. The word in that the word of Hebrew there is the word teva. Y'all say teva. Do you know the only other time the word teva is used in the Old Testament? Only one other time. Do you know what time it was? What was it? The ark. That's right. When God told Noah to build a boat, he didn't say build a boat. He said build a teva. Now, there was a word in Hebrew for boat, but they didn't use it. They said build a teva, which is a a rectangular casket-looking thing, right? Now, she places him in a teva, same thing, same word used for the ark. And this was made of papyrus reeds and waterproofed it with tar and pitch. What else was waterproofed with tar and pitch? The what? The ark. Y'all remember that, right? Right. And she put the baby inside the basket and laid it among the reeds on the bank of the Nile River. And the baby's sister then stood at a distance watching to see what would happen. Well, what happens is this baby floats down the Nile River and it comes up to happens to end right at the palace. Right. And the princess comes out and she's getting ready to take a bath and she notices the baby. Right. She brings the, the baby out of the, the teva. And the sister of the baby comes up to the princess and says, hey, I know a lady who can help nurse you, nurse him. Is that okay? She said, yeah. So she takes the baby, takes it back to the mom, right? And she allows the mom to feed the baby and care for the baby. A couple months go by. Moses is taken back to the Pharaoh. Pharaoh's daughter uh, adopts him and gives him the name Moses, which is not a Hebrew name. It's a very Egyptian name. Gives him the name Moses, right? Moses grows up. He's educated as an Egyptian, but his heart is for his people. That's a throwback to Joseph, right? And then one day he sees a Hebrew slave being mistreated, and he kills the attacker, buries his body in the sand, and he flees. Do you all want to know how old Moses was when when he fled? He was 40. It's a significant number. Round numbers, whole numbers, 40. So then Moses goes away from Egypt, finds this place called Midian, and he hangs out in Midian. Y'all want to know for how many years? Forty. Right? So he goes to Midian, hangs out in Midian for 40 years, comes and he meets a girl, becomes his wife, meets her dad, becomes his father-in-law. His dad had one of the coolest names in the entire Bible. Do you know what his dad's name was or her, his father-in-law's name? Jethro. 
Isn't that just a cool name? Can you not think about that name without thinking about the Beverly Hillbillies? Like, that's immediately where I go to, Jethro, right? So Jethro, very, very smart guy, excellent leadership skills, mentors Moses for the next 40 years. One day Moses is taking his sheep, right, on a walk. Now I'm all leashes. I had all the sheep on leashes. And they were walking. Just kidding. They weren't on leashes. Pay attention. And they, they're walking, and, and they come across a, a bush that's burning, but not being consumed. It's a burning bush, not being consumed. And he walks up to the bush because that's curious, right? And he gets to the bush, and the bush speaks to him. Have you ever had any talking bushes? No, I have not had talking bushes. If you have, I want to know, what did you smoke? Talking bush. And the bush says, Moses, right? Just like that. And it says, the place that you stand is holy ground. Take off your shoes. And so Moses takes off his sandals, and he sits there. And this bush begins to speak to him and tells him, Moses, I have a task. This is all important information. Backstory, you got to understand. I have an important task for you. I want you to go and set my people, the Hebrews, free from Pharaoh's grip. And there's this argument that goes back and forth between Moses and the burning bush. And then finally Moses says, all right, this is about as crazy as it comes. So when I go back to them and I, and I tell them that I spoke to the burning bush, um, and, he, and the burning bush told me to tell y'all to let, let y'all go, who should I really say is telling me to do this? And, and the bush says this in Exodus 3 verses 15, or 14 to 15, it says, and then God replied to Moses, I am who I am. I am who I am. It says, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent you. God also said to Moses, say to this people of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your ancestors, the God of who? Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of has sent me to you. This is my eternal name. My name is to be remembered for all generations. He tells Moses, I'm going to give you signs, Moses. It's going to be interesting. Pharaoh's going to fight it, but I'm going to give you signs to show that I'm behind you. I'm with you. The first one's going to be your, sna- your staff. I want you to take your staff. I want you to throw it before Pharaoh to turn into a snake. Guess what happens? Moses goes to Pharaoh. He throws the staff down, and it turns into what? A snake. But then, then it says, Pharaoh's two magicians were there, right? Pharaoh's two magicians were there. Y'all remember the movie, right? And, and their two staffs were thrown down and turned into a snake too, right? And, and what happened? Moses' snake staff ate the Pharaoh's snake staffs. Interesting. And so it, 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 they, they eat them. That's a, that's a preference about what's going to happen. Our God is going to destroy your gods, Okay? Now, Moses returns to talk with God, and then God sends him, tells him it's time for plagues. Now, here you go. Here's what's important, okay? Here we go. The first plague that shows up is going to be the plague, the the plague of turning water into, not wine, blood, right? Turning water into blood, and Aaron holds his staff out. That's Moses' brother, because Moses did this whole, like, I'm not really good at public speaking, and God was like, whatever, like, I know better, but okay, take Aaron and make Aaron speak for you, okay? So Aaron holds a staff out over the Nile, and it turns to blood, and everything in the Nile dies. And the water becomes undrinkable, and it lasted for seven days. And then the next plague. The next plague was a plague of frogs. Moses then returns, and he announces, let God's people go or else. And Pharaoh said no. And so then frogs, y'all say frogs. Frogs, isn't that a weird word? 
Frogs, yeah. Frogs swarmed everywhere, piled up, and they died, and the stench was horrible. And yet Pharaoh still refused to listen. And then the next plague comes. The next plague is a, a plague of gnats, or some translations say lice. But, but regardless, have you ever dealt with gnats in a hot summer day? They ever walked into a, just a swarm of them and inhaled them? You ever done that before? And they get stuck in your throat and in your coffin and you're hacking? Yeah, I'm telling you, I have had plenty of protein from gnats. And so Aaron raises his staff, and, and it says, then the dust of the ground turned into a swarm of gnats, and yet Pharaoh still what? He refused. He said no, right? And then another plague. This is a plague of flies. So then the flies come in. They come in from everywhere, filled the house, and Pharaoh Pharaoh changes his mind. Now, let me tell you, flies are nasty. You, you know that? I remember the very first house that I lived in when Kim and I got married. I lived there for like a year before Kim and I got married. I liked my house. It was a 105-year-old farmhouse. It was two bedrooms. It hadn't been updated since probably 1900 or something. It was really old. But I remember coming home one day after work, after I'd been married with Kim for a little bit, and we walked in, and there was a swarm of flies. I don't know. I guess we had stayed away for a weekend or something. And came out, there's a swarm of flies, like, everywhere. That is, that is gross. Makes you feel a little dirty, right? And so this plague of flies come in, and they swarm everywhere. And then Pharaoh changes his mind. He says, okay, fine. You guys can go. Take the Hebrew people. Leave. And when the flies leave, Pharaoh changes his mind and says, just kidding. Right? And then the plague of livestock happens. So God sends Moses back, and he says, in the, in the hand of the Lord, y'all say the hand of the Lord. Okay? So then he says, the hand of the Lord will strike all the livestock, horses and donkeys and camels and cattle and sheep and goats with the plague. And the next day it happened, and all of the Egyptian animals die, not any of the Hebrew animals. But Pharaoh was still stubborn and refused to let him go. How many of y'all think he's hard-headed, right? You, you would think that. Like, this dude's pretty hard-headed, right? Next plague. This is all going somewhere, right? Next plague. This is the plague of festering boils. Festering boils, right? So God tells Moses to take handfuls of soot from a brick kiln and throw it into the air, and the ashes would create festering boils to break out on all the Egyptians' And their livestock. Now, wait a minute. Didn't all the livestock just die in the previous plague? That's what I said, right? But the boils come back, and I guess get on any of the animals that didn't die from the first round, okay? And so it says, uh, so they break on the Egyptian livestock. It says, what does Pharaoh do? You ready? Does Pharaoh let him go? No, but here's a plot twist. Why did he not let him go? This is in the scripture. Why did he not let him go? At this point, it says Pharaoh, heart, his heart was hardened by who? Why was his heart? It was hardened by who? Y'all read it? And that, now, isn't that interesting? That seems kind of weird, doesn't it? God's saying, hey, Moses, I want you to go and deliver my people from, from Egypt. I want you to show them these plagues and, and make it so, that, Israel, so that, that Pharaoh will let my people go. And then about seven into it, God says, oh, I'm not done. Even if you want to let go, Pharaoh, we're not done here. So he hardens Pharaoh's heart, 
and Pharaoh refuses to let them go. Did you know that? Maybe you didn't know that when you read it before. Now watch. So Exodus yeah, 9.12 says, The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and just as the Lord had predicted to Moses, Pharaoh refused to listen. Number seven plague is the plague of hail. Hail, all hail is about to break loose. That's what happens. And Moses lifts his hand into the sky, and hail starts falling on all the people and their livestock. Wait a minute, the livestock that didn't die in the first time the animals died, and then the ones with boils, the other livestock that's still alive. Right? Are you all tracking with this? Interesting, isn't it? Yeah. It says, okay, hail starts falling on all the people and their livestock so bad, so bad that even the trees that weren't, even the trees were destroyed. And then Pharaoh has a moment. If you were there, this would be the soundtrack that you would hear in that moment. Hail's hitting everything. So many plagues have already happened. And you would hear the soundtrack and it would go, oh, freak out. And that's what happened. With Pharaoh in that moment, he began to freak out. So Pharaoh freaks out, and he tells Moses, okay, 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 I'll let your people go. But when it stopped hailing, what happened? Pharaoh was like, just kidding. How many of y'all think this has gone way too long, right? Yeah. Wait, we're not done. The plague of locusts, right? Another plague. A plague of locusts come. They come in, and they devour every plant in the fields and all the fruit of the trees that survived the hailstorm. And Pharaoh then repents again. And tells Moses, I'll let your people go. But then, Exodus 10, 20, but the Lord, what? Hardened Pharaoh's heart. So he refused to let the people go. Then there was a plague of darkness. Some of us prefer to stay away from these stories in the Bible. I'm like, I met Jesus, I'm good. Right? But then there's the plague of darkness. It becomes so dark that people could not see and no one moved. Now watch. But there was normal light where the Hebrews lived. How can it be so dark that nobody can see and yet still be light at the Hebrews' house? That's what it says. Yeah. But there, yeah. Dominion cut it right off. But then Pharaoh says, okay, okay, okay. I'll let your people go. But God, that's right. But God says, I'll harden his heart. And then the final plague happens. The tenth plague happens. And this one right here, I think, beyond all the other plagues that, that you read about, this one right here really kind of, kind of hits differently, right? This kind of hits differently because this is the plague of the death of Egypt's firstborn, right? So then God tells Moses that he's going to go through the land and strike down the firstborn of every Egyptian house. And at midnight, the Lord struck the firstborn sons. Every single, this is what scripture says, every single Egyptian house had someone dead. Pharaoh lets the Hebrew slaves go, kicks them out, right? Kicks them out, and they leave, it says, with silver and gold. Israel leaves, and shortly after the Israel leaves, Pharaoh realizes the big mistake he just made, and because God had hardened his heart, it was a bad idea to let him go. And so Pharaoh and his army pursue Israel to the Red Sea. The water stands up. Y'all remember that scene? The water stands up. The whale swims to the side. Remember that? The water stands up. Israel crosses through the Red Sea. And as, as Egyptians, as the Egyptians and the pharaohs, they chase after them, 
They get stuck in the middle. And what happens? Y'all know the story. What happens? All the water comes crashing down and drowns every last one of them. So this is one of the most popular stories in the Bible and one that's ironically taught in a lot of kids' church settings, like the flood is taught in kids. The flood is not a kid's story. Can, can we just agree with that? Like, that's not the kid's story. The, the, the Moses and the Tim Plex, this is not a kid's story, right? But it's one of the most popular stories in the Bible, so much so that Hollywood has made numerous movies about it. But it's a story that should cause us to ask questions, and especially uh, in the light of Christ. See, if God looks like, if, if, if God looks like Jesus and Jesus looks like God, and it's always been that, then how do we read and understand Scripture, how we read and understand Scripture, is a big deal. It should cause us to ask great questions like, if God looks like Jesus, what about the flood? If God looks like Jesus, what about that loving your neighbor? If God looks like Jesus, what about Moses and the ten plagues? And that's what we're doing today. That's what we're looking at. You see, for most of us, and this is where you can take what I'm saying and entertain it and study it, or you can just tune me out like you did five minutes ago and just keep your story. But for most of us, we're taught to read Scripture literally. We are. We're taught to read Scripture literally. We're taught that we take this book called the Bible and we start from the front and we read it all the way to the back and everything in it is to be taken literally. Everything in it happened exactly as it says it happens and that becomes the basis for my belief. But let me just tell you something. Scripture is not the basis or sole basis for your belief. It's not. Jesus is. Okay, Jesus becomes the sole figure for your belief. And and. When you read it literally, when you take certain stories like this one and you do a literal reading of the story and saying, oh, everything happened exactly the way it happened without studying context, without studying what it was like for the ancient writers to write this, why the ancient writers were writing this, when was this written, um, what was the point of the story? When we don't consider those things, we miss out on so much. We miss out. And it gets us into trouble, and we have this misshapen view of God. Even Jesus challenged people with a literal-only view of Scripture. Did you know that? Even Jesus did. Look, I'll show you. Go to Matthew 5, 27. Jesus challenged people with a literal-only reading of Scripture. He said, you have heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. You see that? Keep going. He says, but I say, anyone who's even looked at a woman lustfully or looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Go to the next verse. So if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to, to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Right? I had to say it like that. So he challenged them. 
The Pharisees, the religious people at the time, they, they thought to themselves, well, if I can only, if I only just, you know, if as long as I don't commit adultery, I'm good. And Jesus said, if you're taking a literal only view of that scripture, you're missing it. Because adultery doesn't just happen when you sleep with somebody. Oops. Adultery happens when you begin to entertain all these thoughts that you shouldn't be entertaining. What is on the inside will eventually manifest on the outside. That's why it's not just do not kill, but don't be angry because if you're angry on the inside, you're going to murder on the outside. Side. That's, there's not a single murder that's ever taken place that didn't start as anger in someone's heart. Did you know that? So keep going. we got to keep going, okay? So there's a different way to read Scripture. We need to consider the genre in which the text is written in. Is it historical? Is it poetic? Is it, is it wisdom? Are they using hyperbole? Which, yes, the Bible uses a ton of hyperbole. A lot of big, big numbers, a lot of round numbers. Like that, that's hyper, hyper, hyperbolic language, hyperbole. And so what is the purpose of the story being communicated? And most importantly, is it Christ-like? If we take a literal only reading and we take the story as strictly facts, we have a lot to reconcile. Now here, here's what I mean. Here's what I mean. Y'all with me? Y'all still with me this morning? All right. All right. So we take a literal reading and strictly facts. This is we have a lot to reconcile. First of all, how can the God of Jesus, the Father of Jesus, bring so much destruction? Because the Father we see revealed by Jesus looks very different than the Yahweh, or the God who is doing this to Egypt. It's a very different portrait. And so how is it? How is it that the God of Jesus, the Father of Jesus, can bring so much destruction? After all, the Father revealed by Jesus doesn't have favorites, right? He causes it to reign on the just and the unjust. Jesus shows that the heart of God is to die for his enemies instead of killing his enemies. I want you to think about that, right? After all, Jesus said, it's the thief who comes to steal, kill, and what? He said, but I have come to give life. It's very clear. But we would have to reconcile that. If I want to read this literally, if I want to take this as as what it is, I have to reconcile that. How does God then go to being the God of of Jesus, right? If we take a strictly literal reading of the story, we have to reconcile that this is a true statement. We have to reconcile this, that there is an incredible, listen to me, this is why you have to read outside of just the Bible. Remember we talked about that a couple weeks ago. The Bible is anything but basic. Would you agree? It's anything but basic. Someone who says the Bible is your basic instructions before leaving earth has never read the Bible because it's anything but basic, right? You have to understand that if you want to take a strictly literal and historical uh, reading of the text, you have to reconcile the fact that there is no Listen, there is no written evidence for this story outside of the Bible. Did you know that? that I know it's, it's triggering some of us like, what? But it's true. There's, no, there's a lack of evidence for this story being outside the Bible. Uh, outside, any, any evidence of it being written about outside the Bible. Okay? There's a massive lack of archaeological evidence that reveals that a some two million person exodus out of Jesus, uh, out of Jesus, out of, out of Egypt actually occurred. Think about this. This is crazy, right? The, there's actually no evidence, archaeological evidence, that shows a mass migration of that many people leaving Egypt. There are no Egyptian records that show 
that, that that many Israelites lived in Egypt during that time. There is no, now watch, just hang in there with me. There is no archaeological evidence that even shows that, that Egypt um, had this type of vow, that had these plagues that hit them. You know, the way that, that history, the way that the ancients would write history, it wouldn't be that they would ignore it. Some people would say, well, yeah, I would ignore that too. I would act like that never happened. The Pharaoh got wiped out. All the Egyptians got wiped out. The firstborns got, I would act like it never happened. But that's not the way ancients wrote things. They didn't sidestep things and ignore as if they never happened. What they do is they write it this way. And our gods were upset with us and thus punished us. And we dealt with X, Y, and Z. But there's no history of that whatsoever. You would have to reconcile that. And it's okay. It's okay for some people to say, well, we're just waiting for archaeology to catch up with the Bible. Okay, that's fine. But you still have to sometimes, you just have to entertain it. You at least have to consider it. How do we explain the desire, this is back, how do we explain the desire of God to move Pharaoh to let his people go only to turn around and harden the heart of Pharaoh so he can continue to deliver plagues? It does not sound very Christ-like. So let me say very clearly, if you hold to a literal reading of some of the stories in the first five books of the Bible and still hold that God is good and fully revealed in Christ, that is fine. That's okay. Hang in there. We'll get past this series in a couple weeks, on to a new one, and you'll like me again. You can agree to disagree. I held this view for a very, very long time. I held this view. I would say regarding this story, this is how I used to preach. I've been doing this for 23 or 24 years now, right, preaching. And I've preached this not out of this message. I got some good Moses and Tim plagues and Exodus messages in my arsenal. But I would say regarding this story, well, that's just how God had to deal with Israel's enemies. After all, they are his chosen people. So God had to deal deal with it that way. When it came to killing the Egyptian uh, firstborn children, I I had this reconciled in my head. Well, well, God had to kill the Egyptian firstborn children because if if they had grown up, the the hatred and the anger that was inside their hearts would have festered and they would have went after Israel. And so God knew that they were going to do that, so God had to take them all out when they were babies. That's what I used to have to reconcile. The same thing, and we'll talk about this next week, but it's the same mindset we have when we talk about the Genesis. I mean, the, I'm sorry, the, uh, the uh, Canaan conquest, where God commands Israel to go into the land of Canaan. And we hear Joshua say, well, the Lord has commanded us to go in and kill every man, woman, and child. That's what Joshua says God told him to do, and go kill every man, woman, and child. And so how I used to reconcile that and how I was taught to reconcile that through Bible school, my denomination's Bible school, is to say, well, God knew they would have ended up offering child sacrifices, and so he went ahead and dealt with them there. That's how we, and I know for some of us, that might seem very foreign, especially when you hear messages on a weekly basis about the goodness of God and God's grace and his mercy and his love and being revealed to Jesus. That's a hard thing for us to grab a hold of. As I came to understand the expressed image of God, I still held on to a, a literal reading. I would hold on to a literal reading of that, and I would say, well, it took place in the Old Testament, but now we're in the New Testament, and God has to deal or had to deal with them that way until Jesus came. And that's really just saying God's the bad cop and Jesus is the, the good cop. And then Jesus showed up. He changed the mind of the bad cop. That's what I used to think. But here's the thing. 
Let me challenge you just to think a little differently. You might have never have heard what I just told you. You might have spent your whole life going to church and never heard that. I'm sorry you heard it now. <laughs> but, but the reality is, is you needed to hear that. You needed to hear that, right? So let me challenge you to think a little bit differently. If Jesus is God and God has always been like Jesus, we have to ask ourselves here, what is going on? And this, again, is why it's important to read other books, not just the Bible. So let's start with some history real quick, right? When we read Old Testament, if we're not careful, we can look at it, at its recorded history and say, well, this is exactly how this thing unfolded. But when we're confronted with evidence that maybe, just maybe, somehow is recorded, uh, how something is recorded in the Bible didn't happen the way it said it had happened, we are thrown into a tailspin. But why? Because to us, our Western mindset, if it says it happened like that, then it happened like that, and it's not worth anything if it didn't. In other words, my faith is attached to the certainty in facts. Did you hear what I just said? My faith is attached to certainty in facts. And the problem with that is, is that certainty in facts don't produce faith. Because what do you need faith for if you have certainty in facts? See, faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen, right? So, again, this is why it's important to study and read outside the Bible. When you and I read the flood story or the Exodus story and the ten plagues, we are reading through our Western lens, our modern Western lens. And through our experience, we're not asking the right questions. We're not asking how and why did the ancient people communicate these stories the way they did. Let me show you something. Pull that slide up real quick. The other one. There you go. Can you all see that okay? So I want you to understand this is a really important thing. This is an eye-opening thing here. The way that ancient people, right, communicated information or communicated history um, before 600 BCE, they communicated history through story. The history was more of a story. The main point was far more important than the details. Did you hear what I just said? The main point was far more important than the details. That frustrates the crap out of us because we care more about the details than we do the point of the story, right? Did you know that's how Jesus communicated with those he followed? He shared parables. He shared stories to communicate points. And we try to make doctrine out of parables, and you can't make doctrine out of parables because the details are not what's important. It's the point of the story that's important. Do you hear me? And so it wasn't until after 600 BCE and through uh, the 500 CE that people began to st uh, uh, started to write history like we do today. So when we go back and we read something that is a historical account, like a flood story narrative, Sodom and Gomorrah, we read the, the, the Canaan conquest, or we read the story of Moses and the Ten Plagues, we have to remember that we're reading history that is told with a point in the story and not necessarily about factual details. Is that, are you hearing what I'm saying to you? I know that's a big stretch for some of us, but it's important to remember because there are things that they know about their story that we aren't really privy to. That goes without saying. You got a few more minutes? All right, listen. 
It goes without saying. Remember, the stories recorded in the Torah, that is the first five books of the Bible, were passed down orally from generation to generation. The first five books of the Bible was passed down orally from generation to generation to generation. Do you know how long it was from the time that Moses was said to have lived and died until the very first recorded, recorded uh, story of Moses was? Do you know how long it was? Between 700 and 1,000 years. Generation after generation after generation after generation, telling telling stories. Now, do you know what you, I know, I'm not trying to bore you guys. I find this highly fascinating. But listen, do you know what you get when you sit down and you start reading the first five books of the Bible? You get stories that are sometimes repeated in, in text. You'll have two chapters tell you a story here, and then 15 verses in the next chapter tells you the exact same story you just read, but it has different details to it. And you're like, well, why is that different? And that's because out of those generations of generations of generations of storytelling, there arose different traditions. Are you tracking with me? And so I tell this story like this. This tradition tells this story like this. This tradition tells this story like this. And then what happens is Israel, like we talked about in week two, gets held in captivity in Babylon and begins to write down their story. And they pull these different traditions together and they combine them. And that's why. There's like four different ones. That's why you have some different and conflicting information. Are you tracking with me? So... Like, man, go back to preaching, Pastor Chris. You're teaching too much. What? Yes. Thank you. It's good to have a lawyer in your congregation. That's right, because it's right. Exactly. And so, listen, so they, they take it and they form it together, right? And they, and they put, produce the first five books of the Bible, again, around between 600 and 500 BCE, right? That's when they put it together. It's not when they've been telling stories, they've been doing that for a while, but they put it together in written form then. And so the question that, that, you, that one may ask is, is this, well, then do you not believe that everything that happened the way it did in the Exodus story, I think it goes without saying, I would say I believe that there's enough evidence, enough, uh, enough of an echo of an actual event, some form of occupation, some form of Exodus that is stuck in the minds of the Israelites generation after generation. But do I, per- and this is me, please don't, this is me. Do I believe it unfolded exactly how it's written? No, I don't. And, and, and again, at this point, I can look at Christ and go backwards and say, okay, I can see that. Do I believe God really did respond the way he did in the story, eventually wiping out every child? The same God who would then sit, stand in front of his disciples and say, don't hinder any of the little children. Let them come to me. You remember that? And you remember what else he said? He said, if anybody causes any of these little ones to stumble, it'd be better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and thrown into the lake. Pretty strong hyperbolic language. Then to cause one of these little ones to stumble. Right? So, so no, but, but this isn't the question. This isn't the question I ask now when reading the story. So I look for deeper meaning. I read the story as an allegory, okay? I read the story as an allegory. I read a deeper level of meaning into the story. I look for Jesus in the story, right? Um, I'm not the only pastor that does this. I'm definitely not the only Christian that does this. As a matter of fact, there are early Christian fathers who did this. Y'all got six more minutes? I promise I'll be done, all right? 
early Christian fathers who did this. Origin of Alexander, Alexandria. Origin of Alexandria was literally the most influential, influential Christian theologians and exegetes in history. Literally, this guy inspired the fathers who inspired the fathers who inspired the fathers. He was that, that incredible. He took an allegorical reading of Scripture, reading the deeper meaning, reading below the details of the surface to see Christ in the story, right? So did Clement of Alexandria, Gregory of Nyssa, Philo of Alexandria, and even Augustine of Hippo. Now, interestingly enough, interestingly enough, Augustine, later in life, much, much later in life, took a more literal reading of Scripture, and by default, Augustine was the influence in the Western church, which is why uh, we take so much of a literal reading of Scripture in the Western church. But early on, it was allegorical. For Israel, the story is much more than the story. It's an origin of their national identity. It's the story of God's faithfulness. It's the story uh, that counters the culture they're living in. It's the story that highlights the fact that their God, Yahweh, is the most high God. Let me explain. Here's what you don't have when you read the story of, of the 10 plagues. You ready? You have no idea why those 10 plagues. Does anybody have any idea why those 10 plagues? You have no idea why those 10 plagues. Most of us don't because we're so detached from it. We're clueless. But let me tell you why those 10 plagues. First of all, the plague of blood. This plague was literally the defeat of the Egyptian god Happy the God of the Nile River and its annual flooding. This wasn't just 10 plagues. This was a cosmic war. This was God, Yahweh, defeating the gods of, of Egypt. This is written into, they, they knew this. We don't. So the plague of blood was, the again, countering the, the happy God, the, the God of Nile and, and its annual flooding. The plague of frogs, ready for this? He quits. The frog-headed goddess of fertility and childbirth. The plague of gnats, uh, that was countering the, the god Gib, which is the god of earth. The plague of flies, uh, Kipri, which is the god of creation, movement of the sun and rebirth. You ready for this? The plague of livestock, that was Hathor and Apias. Hathor was a goddess associated with, mother, with motherhood and fertility, often depicted with cow-like attributes. Apis was a bull deity. The plague of boils, Sekhmic the goddess of war, pestilence, and healing. That's who got defeated, right? The god, uh, the plague of hail, that was the god Nut, right? That's an original name. The goddess of the sky and heavens. The plague of locusts, Osiris, the god of fertility and vegetation and afterlife. The plague of darkness, Ra, the sun god, the primary deity of Egypt. And the last but not least, the plague of death of the firstborn, and that was a counter to or conquering a pharaoh because pharaoh himself was considered to be a god king, the embodiment of divine authority and power. So what is this story communicating to both ancient Israelites and to those who would go on to hear it? It's that this, listen, God is faithful to bring you out of captivity. And Israel people held captive by Babylonians would find encouragement into this. Do you remember when this got documented, when it was written down? Was when? When they were held in captivity by the Babylonians. And so in Israel, held in captivity by Babylonians, we find encouragement, hope, and faith in this story because if God could do it then, God would do it what? Now, and God is on the side of the slaves. So how do we read this now? How do we read this with a Christ-centered lens? Like this. Like this. So Christ is a type of Moses. His mission is to free his people. Who are his people? Everyone, all means all, 
And as a matter of fact, Matthew's gospel paints Christ in this very light, tying his story to Herod's killing of the firstborn of of Israel's children to that of Pharaoh's killing of the firstborn of the Hebrew children. As a matter of fact, Moses left Egypt, and in Matthew's gospel, Jesus flees to Egypt. Egypt represents sin and death and the world that holds us in bondage. It is comfortable, and it's what we know, but Jesus came to do battle with sin and death, just like those plagues battled the false gods. This, Jesus came to do battle with sin and death. In 1 John 3, 8, it says, but when people keep on sinning, it shows that they belong to the devil, who has been sinning since the beginning, but the Son of God came to destroy the works of what? The devil. And the death of the firstborn is what released Israel. Remember that? The death of the firstborn is what released Israel, right? But it was the death of Jesus, the firstborn, that released the cosmos. Crossing the Red Sea, going through its waters, represents the baptism we followed Christ in. We enter with him in the grave, and through baptism we come out into new life. The Moses story, the Moses story pointed Israel to God's faithfulness. The Moses story points us to Christ And with Christ-like lens, we can see God's faithfulness, not just for Israel, but for everyone. And so when I read the story of Moses and the Ten Plagues, I ask the question, but is it Christ-like? On the surface, I can say, no. Wiping out firstborn people is not very Christ-like. But as I read this allegorically, I read into it, the depth of it, I ask that same question, but is it Christ-like? And my answer can be what? Yes. Yes. 100%. So for me, asking the question, is it Christ-like, and just happening to read books outside the Bible is a huge help. So next week, we'll continue our series talking about the land of Canaan, genocide, and keeping virgins as a spoil of war. And we'll ask... Is it Christ-like? Do me a favor. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes for me? Father, we thank you for your grace, your mercy, and your goodness. And I pray, Father, that our hearts remain open and receptive uh, as we leave today, Father, that we would just be challenged to dig in deep, God, and just to ask the good questions, Father. And I just thank you for wisdom and discernment, uh, both for those who are listening, God, and for myself as we continue in this series. Father, we thank you for revealing yourself as beautiful. God, we thank you for revealing yourself in Christ and giving us a full glimpse of who you are. And so, Father, we thank you for your love, your grace, and your mercy. In Jesus' name, everybody said amen, amen. We'll see you next week.